Amen, amen, amen. Well, you may be seated. Again, welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here, and and today we're going to continue a series we've been in this summer looking at the Psalms called Soundtrack for Our Souls. And so we're going to be in two places uh, in our Bible for the most part today. One is um, 1 Samuel chapter 21, and then also Psalm 34. So if you have your Bibles, you have an app or whatever, you can go to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 21. And as we're going there... I want you to ask yourself, what are you afraid of? What causes you the greatest amount of fear? What's the biggest fear you have in the world right now or in your life? And and I want to submit to you that, that our world that we live in is a constant buffet of fear. And that every time we wake up in the morning and we grab our phones, it's like, it's like going down uh, on the main street of a town and you're asking yourself, like, which restaurant do I want to go to for just another buffet of, of fear? And so you, you, you log on and you want to get some news and you, you go to CNN or you go to Fox and it's like, hey, what should I be afraid of today? You're like, okay, well, I don't, I, uh, man, I don't know. I'm a little discouraged. Maybe I'll just see what other people are saying. I'm going to go hop over to, to Twitter and, and, and maybe see what other people are telling me I should be afraid of or what I should be angry uh, about. And you're like, well, okay, I don't want to engage with that. I'm just going to go on Instagram. And now the fear of our own imperfections gets brought to light. And maybe if you're like, no, no, I don't want you know, corporate media, I don't want big tech um, telling me uh, what to be afraid of. So let me just, I'll just go log into the, to the bank account app and see where that's at. Oh, okay, oh, never mind, let's put that down. All right, let's just go step on the scale, right? So we're like, no, no, I don't want big and personal corporate fear. I'm going to come up with some homegrown stuff, locally sourced organic fear, right? Maybe I'll just watch some King 5 instead of watching the big boys. And in all of that, the world is constantly serving us up a daily diet of fear. And right now you can say, oh, you know, it's, it's about the virus or, or whatever. That, that, that's fine. But um, I'm going to tell you, we're about two months away or a month and a half away, a uh, month away, I guess, from September 11th the 20-year anniversary of the attack on the towers. And I can tell you, growing up in that time and, and becoming an adult during that time, that, wow, constant daily fear of terrorist attack. And so we are people who are driven by fear. And sometimes it's out there. And sometimes it's in here. So we have to be able to understand how to process that. How to engage with that, because we're going to face fear, we're going to face distress, there's going to be so many situations and seasons that like should necessarily give you fear, and there's other times that maybe we, we don't need fear, but instead we should be looking for, for faith. And so there's going to be endless events and influences that lead us not only to worry but to anxiousness. And so um, I, I'll be frank, like, like if you're like not fearful and not anxious, like, like I know some of you aren't, that, that's great. Uh, I'm like, hey, Maybe pay attention a little bit. Like, there's a lot going on that's really difficult and, and distressing at, at times. And so we get connected to so much of what's happening. We try to process the world uh, worth of worry because we've been given more information at this point in human history than any other time. And, and I can't say that we're better for it. We'll talk more about that in the fall when we get to Ecclesiastes. And so what I love about the Bible is there is timeless truths and principles that transcend our current circumstances. And so as you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21, we're gonna, we're gonna meet David here again. And a few weeks ago, we talked about David as the king, uh, David who was in sin, right? He, he went after Bathsheba and kind of that downward spiral. Well, earlier in David's story, he was a great warrior. He ascended actually because he was seen in the eyes of the Lord and others as more faithful leader than Saul. And there's one thing people in power hate, it is a threat to their power. And so as the Lord literally anointed David to be king over Israel, over God's people, Saul immediately went from like, David's my, my, my best friend, David's our, our champion that's fighting the evil Philistines, to David better be taken out because he's a threat to my power. And so we meet David here in 1 Samuel chapter 21, and he's been on the run for his life. He has the entire um, Israeli army against him. 
when he had actually been a general in that army. In fact, so famous uh, for that, they were singing songs about his victory. And so as David's on the run here in Psalm, sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 21, starting in verse 10, he's fleeing, and it says this. We're going to read ver- uh, verses 10 uh, to the end of the chapter. It says, And David rose and fled that day from Saul. And he went to Achish, the king of Gath. So he's, he's out of Israel. And the servants of Achish said to him, uh, Is this David the king of the land? Did they not sing of to one another of him in dances, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart. And he became very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. And he made marks on the doors of the gate and he let his spittle run down his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? So this fellow come into my house and, and then he, he sends him away. And so... As I, as I read this, because I started begin studying for Psalm 34, I was like, I feel like I've read this before because a couple years ago I taught on Psalm 56 and, and kind of saw that as a psalm about anxiety. And, and it says there, hey, that song was written about this instance. Well, if you open your Bibles to Psalm 34, and we're going to spend the rest of our time there, it says, Psalm 34 of David when he changed his behavior before the king so that he drove him out and he went away. So some instances in our life are so big and so traumatic that, that, that there's a depth and breadth of emotions around them. In this case, David has written multiple songs about this account, and, and about this experience of being under pressure, right? He's chased by Saul. He's gone to this Philistine city outside of Israel. He is literally a man without a country. He's like, I'm a veteran. I fought for this country. The Lord is behind me. What do I do now? It seems like everywhere I turn, there's opposition. And so he flees to this pagan nation that doesn't love the Lord for political asylum. And then they, they remember, you were the guy that was just routing us in battle left and right. Some people maybe in the king's court were like, hey, my son or my friend or my neighbor, my nephew, he was one of the 10,000 struck down by David. And so now David, an enemy in his own country, is now in a foreign land. And what happens when we're in fear is we will leave the places that are familiar to us, because we're like, I can't go there, trauma's there, fear's there, pain's there, and we'll start searching and wandering around the world for a place of refuge. And it doesn't always work out. Because we're trying to change our circumstances. And so David's changed his circumstances, changed the whole venue, but nothing has gotten better, right? It's like the side effects um, to like a, a drug in one of those commercials, like, hey, anyway, this might like, you know, help you with your diabetes, but uh, anyway, and then they just read the list of everything else. And you're like, hmm. So in in David's case, right, he's gone out of the frying pan and into the fire. And the king hears about this great warrior. They're thinking, oh, we need to be afraid of David. And so he sought peace and rest. And now he's worried that his captors are going to imprison him or they're going to execute him because he's the soldier that's been leading this successful charge. And so how does David respond to get out of this? Here we just hear about the actions. It says he acts insane. To be clear, David wasn't crazy. Although there's times when you're in fear, you're under pressure, like you just feel a little crazy, right? When the entire world or media seems to be gaslighting you on a daily basis and you're like, I don't know what's true anymore. So David's acting insane, you know, full on rubber room, clawing the walls, foaming at the mouth in his beard, mad men. And, And what's funny is it actually works for a minute. It gives him a bit of relief. And so the king says, I've I got enough crazy people in my country as it is. I don't need this guy. This guy can't be the great warrior. He's, he's legitimately insane. And so David's path to freedom actually looked insane to a world that was trying to control him. Man, there might be another whole other sermon if we wanted to go on that rabbit trail on what faithfulness looks like in a world that's gone crazy. I'll let you make your own applications there, Okay. So David is now 
as we get to Psalm 34, he's past the pressure of the episode, right? Storms in the rear view look different than when we're in them. And so David's kind of past that pressure point. He still needs peace and life in the midst of trial, but, but the biggest physical enemy is, is kind, of, kind of assuaged at this moment, although Saul's still after him, and so he still needs peace. He still needs deliverance. And so while none of us likely are going to have to flee our country and try to find refuge somewhere else, as if there's some other place that would be better, what is happening here universally applies to us when we find ourselves enslaved to fear, when we find ourselves feasting on fear. And so for David, all of us, David, right, we've all experienced these storms, and I want you to ask yourself, like, like where are you? Right, you want to read Psalm 56? That'll tell you about David in the storm, in the midst of anxiety. He says, people are pursuing me left and right, right? That's what anxiety does. That's what fear does for us. Here, when you get to Psalm 34, it's a little more <sighs> exhale. It's a little more rejoicing. It's a little more, oh, I see what God did there. So where are you? Are you in the storm right now? Are you not even able to see an opportunity for deliverance? Or are you in a place where you've actually had God lead you through a wilderness, lead you through something difficult, and you're kind of on the other end, and you're like, oh, I can see that differently now. And maybe you haven't been in a storm, maybe you're not in one. All of us better be prepared to be in one. Because this is a world full of storms a world full of things to be afraid of. I, I don't say that to, to, to spook you, right? There's good news today. There's gonna be a lot of good news in the text, but we better start with just the, the, the nature of reality. And so great distress and trauma can produce a multitude of complex emotions. And so sometimes it's, it's how you see him process in Psalm 56. And today we're gonna see how his perspective has changed because that great distress has actually been met with a greater deliverance. And so if you have your Bibles again, turn to Psalm 34. It's a long intro, and we're going to get into the text here. Psalm 34 says this. We're going to look at, start with verses um, 1 through 7, rescued to be radiant. So after this has all happened, he, he pens these words to, to sing this song. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried. The Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Let's stop there. Five principles I want us to see in this section of the text. I'll work through quickly. Number one, all of these are about prayer. Right? When we're in fear, our response should be prayer. Number one, prayer and praise. Blessing in all circumstances. Prayer and praise. Bl blessing in all circumstances. When things are going poorly, there's a response, if, if we're somebody who knows the Lord, who has a relationship with the Lord, like, like to cry out to God, and, and, and we're doing so in, in one of two ways. One, either, hey, God, could, could you do something here? Like, I don't like how this is going. Lord, it would be pretty rad if you'd intervene. Or, why didn't you intervene? Why aren't you active in the way I want to see right now? God, are you indifferent to our plight? God, do you not know? God, are you distant? God, are you not hearing? And so um, we forget about him when things are good, though. Right? When you're just chilling out on the lake and the sun's out and, and you got some good food and good drinks and good friends and, and you're like, I mean, I don't have anything I really need right now. And so... Here he says, I'm going to bless the Lord at all times. His praise is going to continually be on my mouth. Later in the New Testament, um, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18, Paul tells a church that's in the middle of distress, that's facing great um, societal upheaval. And he tells them, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, right? Prayer and praise. 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That regardless of your circumstances, that we are people of, of praise. This isn't because we should be happy when we're in distress. But it's because we can remember that regardless of whatever distress we're in, there is a God who is greatly reliable. And I might hit this a few times today, I, I don't know, but I hope that you can come away with an understanding of the great reliability of God who meets us in our distress and brings us in deliverance. Because here's David, he's on the other side of that deliverance, and the only way he can respond, the only way you can respond after deliverance is praise. His excitement is rejoicing. And so I, I don't know how you came in today, but, but how has God worked in your life? How have you experienced deliverance? How have you experienced rescue? How have you experienced rest? And when God's worked in your life, the result of that work is not to be contained. It's not like, well, I'm glad God did something there. Like the reason we know about how David processed the fact that he got out of what was happening in Gath is because he wrote a song about it. He's like, I want generations to know how to respond to God's deliverance. And so he's, he's telling a bit of a personal testimony, right? Here's what God did for me. But in that personal testimony, there's a corporate invitation. He says, hey, let's, let's praise God together. You're like, well, I didn't get saved from political asylum, you know, whatever. Like, like, yeah, that's fine. I just want you to know God's worked in my life. I want you to know he saved me, and, and, and there's some of that portion for you too. Yeah, your distress might be different. Your fear might be different. Your battle might be different, but, but God's present in it as well. And so you say, hey, let, let's, let's come and praise Let's come and rejoice in who God is. He said, I have a reason to praise the Lord. You should too. And so, so I want you to ask yourself, like this gets asked all the time in kind of like business circles and you know, kind of life coaching stuff. What's your why? Another way of saying that is what motivates you? In this case, David's motivation for praise, his motivation for life, his motivation for work comes from a response to salvation received. He's not motivated, hoping salvation will be achieved. Hear that again. His response is because of salvation received. Not motivated, hoping that salvation will be achieved. He's responding to God's work in his life already. He says, deliverance was for me and now it can be for you. All right, number two, prayer and fear. Prayer and fear, great terror, greater fear. You look at verse four, and it said, what does it say here in verse four? I sought the Lord, he answered me, delivered me from all my fears. Um, if you've been here for a while, right, we always say, okay, when you read fear in the Bible, it just means revere worship, because that's, that's in the context of fear of the Lord. This word actually does mean terror. This word means be really afraid. Like, first time watching Blair Witch Project, not sure if it was a documentary, afraid. Okay? Yeah, some of y'all heard me. Some of, you, some of you guys have watched that. Okay. Don't, it's terrifying. It's not real though, it's okay, okay. It's a stronger word, like terror. And sometimes terror and fear is so powerful for us, it's so paralyzing, it's gripping, it overwhelms us, it seems like there's no escape. And I mean, for David, right, he left home where he's hunted, only to go to Philistine, or the, the, the Philistines where he's hated. There is no way out for David. And so when we fear we fear things that are more powerful than us. And so what's, what, again, what is your greatest fear? What's driving you to fear right now? I just, um, every Sunday morning before I walk in, my phone tells me like what my screen time was. And it said, this last week your screen time is up 48%. And what it should just say is, this week your fear and anxiety is up 48%. Because that's about accurate. Like, is it Delta variant? Is that what's driving your fear? Is it government overreach? Is that what's driving your fear? Is it relational tensions and how you're seeing our communities ripped apart in a variety of ways? Like, what is it? Like, we fear the virus because we can't see it. We fear what government does because we can't see it. We're all driven by fear. Maybe it's something different for you. Maybe it's just alienation. Maybe it's irrelevance. 
Because you know you can't do anything to change it. And we wonder if we're just insignificant. See, when we forget the fear of the Lord, we're going to replace that fear and reverence with something less than. If you aren't filled with reverence, you'll be filled with terror. If you've forgotten God, everything you fear gets bigger. The smaller your God is, the bigger your fears are. It leads you to greater distress. It leads you to great discouragement. But the converse of that is true as well. The bigger your God is, the smaller your fears are. The greater opportunity for not distress and discouragement, but, but radiance and rejoicing. See, when we focus on the Lord, our very face changes from one of deep despair to, to radiant glory. The circumstances haven't changed, but the perspective does. The circumstances haven't changed. Our perspective has. Um, in my house, when I walk out on my deck, there's two views I can look at. And one is uh, of Lake Stevens and Mount Pilchuck, and that's the one if you like are on social media that you see me post all the time. There's another view I never post. And it's off to the right. It's this weird bioswale kind of drainage ditch thing that's full of mosquitoes, sometimes has frogs, and it's a line of speck homes that's like a, a great wall of, of, of um, kind of, uh, you know, just not awesomeness. If I walk out on my deck and I focus on that, I'm not happy. I walk out and I look at the mountains and the lake. Circumstances haven't changed. What are you focusing on? Where's your perspective? And so, we should be people that pray in response to our fear. I want to be clear, right? The world says, you know, oh, wow, something bad happens and you send your hopes and prayers. Why don't you do something? Prayer in response to fear is not a rejection of action, but it should be our first reaction. So if you're in the midst of fear, trial, pain, whatever it is, your first reaction, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And then we move on to number three, prayer and action. Okay? Um, where do I get this one? Uh, again, go back to 1 Samuel 21. It doesn't say that David even prayed. Now, we imply here that he has because, I mean, he said, hey, you know, my praise, you know, Lord delivered me. I sought him. You know, you know, I spoke to him. He heard me. That's prayer. And so what we do see is David's actions. Right? I mean, if you just read this without any understanding of the Lord, you might just say, well, David saved himself. He's like super wise and cunning. He's like playing 3D chess. He's like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to act like an idiot and they won't be able to handle me. And so here, David's prayed for deliverance and he's proactively working with and towards that deliverance. There is no lack of faithfulness in pursuing actions or activities that can lead to greater flourishing outcomes or that can lead to deliverance. Right? Like, it's not just, hey, I prayed to the Lord. God, I hope you do something to help me with my finances. Well, anyway, I'm not going to save. I'm not going to give. I'm not going to work. Like, no, no, no. Faithfulness. Faithfulness, a mark of the person of faith who's in the Lord, who's fearing the Lord is rightly placed, is one of prayer and action. So let me encourage you to, to face your fears with a disposition of humility and recognize your reliance. Yes. And then respond with action. Because we get faint and weary when we press through under our own strength and, 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 and our, just, our weakness gets exposed. So if it's no prayer in action, I don't think it's going to go as well. Number four, prayer and humility. Verse six says, the poor cry, the humble hear, and they are heard. This is David talking about himself in the third person. David is the poor man. And you're like, well, why is he poor? Because he's a refugee? Like, well, it, it does mean humble. It does mean needy. But the word humble actually isn't just meek, but it's a word that means afflicted. So don't think like, well, God only hears you if you're really quiet. Meekness and humility are not the same thing. 
Quietness and humility are not the same thing. Humility is a disposition of reliance. And in this case, he's saying to be humbled is even to experience great affliction. And yet this humility leads to greater joy as it says that it's the humble who are seen, who are heard by the Lord, who the Lord responds to as we see how reliant on we are on a God who is again infinitely reliable. If you realize how reliant you are and you come to a God who's reliable, then you can exhale. Because that's what our relationship's supposed to be like. Being in need, being ashamed, being afraid does not disqualify you for faith. Those things are the prerequisite for faith. You can't have faith if you haven't started with being in need. Some shame, some fear. Because you gotta put it somewhere. It's a prerequisite for it. So we're moved to faith by his deliverance and the result is this cycle of prayer and praise and greater reliance. It says, it says here that the shame and the fear, I mean, those are bad words, right? In these first seven verses, they're replaced with words like what? Magnify, exalt, boast. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't have to be ashamed, right? You know, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a LA Chargers fan, right? You're like, no, no, we're the winners, We've been delivered, we're victorious. We get to exalt, we get to boast, not because we've done anything, because it's already been done for us. And so I want you to ask yourself again, like, like what's your testimony? When I mean that, like, what has God done to deliver you from distress? How has God dealt with your shame? How has God answered your fears? How has God provided in your poverty? either in spirit or materially. Later verses, you see how great a God provider uh, is to his people. And so when you've been delivered from the Lord, or by the Lord, rather, we're rescued to be radiant. That's where it talks about the face shining. It's that same word that they would use back then to describe the way a mom looks at a newborn baby. What happened to Moses' face when he just saw the Lord pass by him so it's a radiance that's not manufactured like, okay, just be happy in all circumstances. But the radiance is actually a reflection of the transformation that's already happening in your heart because God's worked in your life. Because God's working in your heart. And so it's one of transformation of God working in and through you. That brings us to number five, prayer and presence. How do we move forward in a difficult world? Right, what if God... Ha- I don't feel like I've been delivered. I don't feel like I'm in a place of safety or refuge. Feels more like I'm in a battle. Feels more like I'm under siege. Feel more like I'm being attacked or facing opposition. Like, there's going to be those moments, there's going to be those seasons. Maybe it's not the big stuff out there, maybe it's the battle in your marriage. Maybe it's what's going on with you physically. Maybe it's the relationship you have with your kids. Maybe it's something at work where it just feels like a battle. We will fall into despair if we think we're alone in that battle and if we forget who wins the war. See, I, maybe I've shared this before, I don't, I don't remember. One of the church networks we're a part of, uh, I was with a bunch of regional leaders and, and one of the guys was leading a church of, of older saints he said, hey, you know, uh, we're really discouraged right now because you're telling us, hey, you know, we're planting churches and, and, and God's on the move, but, you know, we have a whole generation of saints that, that thought they were going to pour into their kids and change the culture, and it didn't work because the culture's gotten worse. He said, what do I tell them? And I'm the young guy at the meeting. I'm new, so I just kind of, believe it or not, kept my mouth shut for a second. But everything inside me screamed, tell them who wins the battle. Tell them the battle's not over. Tell them the story's not over. Here it says, the Lord, rather the angel of the Lord, encamps around those who fear. That word does mean revere. Who fear him and he delivers them. What that means is, when you're in a battle, when you're isolated and alone, that might be how you feel. 
Experientially, you might feel like you've lost, like you're alone, like you're out on an island, like the whole world's going to you know where in a handbasket. Experientially, yep, you're alone. But it says positionally, you're in the middle of the encampment of the most powerful army in the universe. The angel of the Lord is shorthand for the Lord's presence. Some theologians believe that's Jesus Christ himself is with you. What that means is you might think you're alone when in fact, positionally, if you're in Christ, no matter what's happening out there or what storms are happening in here, you're in the middle, the absolute middle of an entire powerful army encamped around you. You, me, we are safe and secure. We are safe and secure when we're in Christ. Because it says the angel of the Lord is encamped around us. How much more presence and protection could you want? All right. This is the response, right? This is what fear does to us. It should lead us to pray, yes. I mean, but, but I think that, that we need to, to, to do a couple things as we look at these next verses. And number one is we need to fast from fear. This is such a conviction for me. Like, like I said, when I looked at that screenshot just, you know, a few minutes ago, screen time's up 38%. I'm like, mm, this week I should probably dial that back down. We need to fast from fear, but we're not called to, to starve ourselves out because we also need to feast on God's grace. And that leads us to these next verses. Verses 8 through 14 says this. 8 through 14. Maybe you've heard these before. This is the good news to us today. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear, revere the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions, they suffer want and hunger. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Verse 11, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil. Do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Let's stop there. Four big ideas uh, in this one. Um, number one, we're going to taste and see what is good. We're going to taste and see what is good. This is, this is not a sample of grace. This is a feast of greatness. Right, so we have great doubt. Like, like, it's okay for you to come in with doubt. That is okay. To doubt, to fear, to doubt is not wrong. To doubt is normal. It should drive us back to the Lord, not to endless deconstruction. And so the invitations to revere and rejoice in the Lord is not a call to an empty hope, but to a feast of mercy and grace. He says, see that the Lord is good. That God who created everything. He's good. He defines what good is. He is what is good. And so, like, there's a certain sense that you should be dissatisfied with the world. If you are, like, perfectly, like, I just love everything that's going on right now, you are a sociopath. It's okay to have, and rather, you should have just a little bit of dissatisfaction with the world. We should long for more and we should know where satisfaction and salvation come from because it's available. And so I, I love that it says, taste and see. Like, um, you, you know, some parts of the world have started to get normal again. Like Costco's back to some sampling. So I'm like a little happy about that. But I'll just tell you, like, like we're like, oh, come taste and see the Lord is good. I think we think we're that one sample cart way back in the corner that's doing the dried kale, you know? And you're like, and you see it at the end of the aisle, and you're like, I'm not even turning the cart to go down that. You know, to taste and see the Lord is good. That is, that is the Saturday before the Super Bowl when they are sampling all the types of chicken wings. Right? Come, taste, feast that the Lord is good. To, to taste something is a multi-sense experience. Right? Smell, see, taste. Here, you know, the, the crackle of, 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 of wings when they come out of the oven, right? I'm, I'm a little hungry. I want some wings, okay? 
right? But it's a full experience that brings some satisfaction, that brings some enjoyment, that brings some, some fullness, that sinks down deep into yourself. And, and like, there's some foods and some drink that you have some and you're like, oh man, whoo, that is super enjoyable. That's what we're being called to. One who satisfies. And yet some of us, as we're walking in fear, we're thinking somehow we're going to endure as we're starving ourselves out from the Lord. Like, I'm just going to intermittent fast from the Lord. Like, we're like reverse alcoholics. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Right? To, to consume, to commune with the Lord is to be intoxicating. And yet we think somehow that we should pursue sobriety from the Lord. And so we fast from the Lord while we're feasting on our fears. And some of you, some of us, right, we start to get our 30-day chip from reading the Bible, our six-month chip from going to church, our one-year chip from prayer, our five-year chip from serving, 10-year chip from giving, it's time to cash in all those chips at the bar of God's grace and have a pint of mercy. That's what the call is to. To taste and see that the Lord is good. You can commune with the Lord. I want to be clear, like, you can be weak and weary and doubtful. You can still be those things. But you're, you're not going to be soothed and satisfied effectively apart from the Lord. Do you remember what grace tastes like? If you've been walking with the Lord for a while, maybe you've forgotten. It tastes like freedom. It tastes like joy. It tastes like acceptance. It tastes like forgiveness, like renewal, like purpose. So quit trying to intermittent fast from the Lord and think that somehow that's going to lead to greater health. Dive in. Have a meal. Commune with the Lord. Gather on Sundays. Read your Bible. When you're in distress, pray and taste again and see that the Lord is good. Quit trying intermittent fast. I think it's going to lead to anything but weakness and anxiety. See, we're, we're wandering around in a wilderness, uh, like a hopeless fugitives like David, where we're hunted and haunted by our fears. And, and here's the call. Hey, don't keep wandering. Come into a feast. And where's that feast? Well, if it's with the Lord, it's in a mighty palace that is safe and secure. As he goes on to talk about provision, those who fear the Lord have no lack of good things. All right, number two, gotta keep moving, guys. Number two, teach what is good. Teach what is good. It says, right, what is in the, uh, come old children, listen to me, I'll teach you the fear of the Lord in verse 11. The motivation of teaching isn't just, you know, okay, know some stuff about God. Okay, okay, all right, the news, dealing with the circumstance, do I have some doctrine around this? I don't know. No, 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 no. It, it's learn about the Lord and the way life works, that he's designed it in such a way to come and taste and see and hear and revere. He says, for those who desire life and love many days. That the motivation of learning about the Lord is more flourishing life today. Like that's an okay motivation. And we'll talk about eternity. But God loves you and has something for you here now today. See, 1 Peter chapter 2, actually Peter kind of quotes this and he says, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, evil, and all slander, like newborn infants long for spiritual milk, that you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Peter in the New Testament's writing to a church of people, again, just like Thessalonians, are dealing with a lot of issues. He says, hey, I want you to know what's good. I want you to be taught what is good. All right, number three, the truth. The truth speak what is good. We speak what is true. And that means that if you're in Christ, if, you, if you're someone who follows Jesus, we have a responsibility in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our community, to speak what is true. That means we can't traffic in lies. 
That means we can't, you can't and shouldn't share what is false or agree to what is false or live a life by lies of false assumptions. It means it's not loving to affirm something that's not true. We're committed to the truth, and that means the loving thing is to be people who are committed to objective reality. The first sin that enters the world comes in not through truth, but through a lie. Through a lie that God is holding out on you, and that there's not consequences if you reject the Lord. We need to be people of the truth. And that might be difficult. Truth in love, okay? Compassion, yes. Clarity, yes. But we can't pretend that things are true that are patently false. There's so many implications for this. We need to be people committed to what's true. That is loving. See, when you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, lies don't taste as good. Right? You've tasted and seen the Lord is good, it's, and then all of a sudden something that's false comes in. It's that cringe you get when you drink a swig of orange juice after brushing your teeth. Remember that feeling? Brush your teeth, it's all clean and good, and then, oh, that first swig of orange juice. No, the truth always satisfies. The truth always tastes good. No, there's lies that are sweet. There's lies that seem to soothe. But the truth is what ultimately satisfies. And then finally, we need to, to be changed. Number four, turn to what is good. Here in verse 14, right, it says, turn from evil. Like, oh man, okay, just, just don't do the bad things. Yes, yeah, so it says turn from evil one time. But it says, pursue peace, do good, desire peace, right? Three positive attributes. So it's not just, like, I don't want a neutral life. I don't want a life where I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I'm, I'm fasting from my fear. I'm feasting on his grace. And then I'm just avoiding evil. No, we've been given a life of purpose. To, to pursue peace. That's wholeness to desire that, to actually actively do good. The response to a feast of grace is overwhelmingly active and positive. And so I, I want to be clear that it's an essential and necessary action to repent from sin, right? But we don't feast on grace with apathy and just wait to get to heaven. No, we actively engage in the world, not, not hoping that we're going to be rescued but because we know our redemption is assured. We turn to what is good because God who is good has turned to us first. So again, all of our good action isn't trying to earn or, or achieve. It's, it's because we've already received. All right, last verses as we close out, guys. Psalm 34, 15 through 22, refuge sought, justice given. He says, the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of all of them. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Ouch! The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. If we leave here today, and we think the answer is just fast from fear, feast on grace, don't do bad things, do good things, and things will get better. That's not the good news. The good news is that regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our affliction, in Christ, the favor of the Lord shines upon you. The entire face of the Lord is looking to you with acceptance, love, security, and even favor 
It's, it says it right here. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. His ears towards their cry. If you're walking away from the Lord, if you've rejected the Lord, you shouldn't expect him to respond to you well. But there's still good news. Like, like you're like, oh man, I'm, I'm walking away from the Lord. I reject the Lord. I don't care about the Lord. Like, okay. His face, it says, is towards the righteous. He hears their cry. He sees their plight. And the problem we have is we've all made a list of who's righteous and who's not. And if we haven't made one, our world right now is making a list. Who's righteous? Who's not? Who gets access? Who doesn't? We are a world full of Pharisees. And we've all made that list. And all of us have assumed we are righteous because, oh, I'm doing these things that they say. I'm righteous because I'm not doing these things that they say. I hate to break it to you. The Bible is explicitly clear. Psalm 103 says it this way. No one is righteous. No, not one. None of us. End the sermon. We're done. No, no, there's better news than that. None of us are righteous on our own. We need a righteousness that doesn't come from us. See, all of us have rejected the Lord. Who can be saved? Well, let me, let's just go back to 1 Samuel again. 1 Samuel, real quick. Bonus verses. 1 Samuel, this is after, it's chapter 22, after David's fleed. Let's see what happens. Verses 1 and 2. David departed from there, okay, he's left, escaped to the cave at Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul, or discontented, another translation says, gathered to him. And he became the commander over them, and they were with him about 400 men. We're not the righteous, we're the ones in distress. We're the ones who have a debt of sin. We're the ones who are embittered or discontent, but there's hope for us. See, Jesus Christ is your cave of refuge. The only people Jesus can call are those who are in distress, are those who are in debt, are those who are bitter in heart and soul. That covers all of us in some way, shape, or form. And so it, it, it says here that, the, that the, the wicked, right, you know, those who reject the righteous, well, read it now this way. If, if no one's righteous, well, I got good news. First John uh, 2, 1 says, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone chooses sin or does sin, rather, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is the righteous. So God has given his favor to Jesus, Jesus has taken our sin, our debt, our shame. So to reject the righteous in these verses is to reject Jesus. It says there's condemnation. But there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you come to the Lord, poor, humble, afflicted, I wanna be clear, like affliction doesn't mean you've done something wrong. Like we should assume affliction. It says, even the righteous are afflicted. Jesus was the righteous and was afflicted for our sins. Suffered ridicule, rejection, beating, crucifixion in our place. He's been reviled, he's been rejected. He suffered for us. Jesus is our substitute for our sin. Jesus pays the debt of our sin and and, and, when it says here in Psalms that the Lord has redeemed his servant's life, we got good news that Jesus, is, Je- Jesus has been resurrected. Jesus comes as the servant of the Lord, suffers reviling, suffers affliction for us, even though he is righteous, suffers for the unrighteous, which is us, and then the Lord redeems his life, takes him out of the tomb so that we can have hope of being out of our prisons, out of our tombs. Jesus is the cave of refuge for us, and then he says, hey, come on out of the cave. Let's go live lives radiating 
rejoicing of what the Lord has done. And so we gather around Jesus who redeems us, and then Jesus becomes not just our Savior, but like that, that army of misfits that gathered around David. Jesus is our commander. Jesus is our Lord. And we listen to him and we follow his will to be an army of agents of mercy and grace to the world around us. And so if you came in today and you're brokenhearted, God is near. If you came in today and you're crushed in spirit and you're wondering what is God doing, these verses tell us that he's working salvation and restoration. And so if you're like, I, I worship the Lord, I'm a Christian, like I, I'm still under distress, I'm, I'm still feeling not saved or, or not rescued, then God's not done working yet. Then your story's not over yet. See, God is faithful to deliver us. Maybe that'll be in this life from certain circumstances. God does that. He doesn't just theoretically save us, but emotionally and, and psychologically and even, even tangibly provides for us. So you might face deliverance now, and that's awesome. But we're all assured of deliverance for eternity in Christ. So no matter how bad things get or how despondent or despairing you are now, there is good news that comes knowing that God is the one who loves us and meets us in our grief and our pain and he responds with healing and wholeness. So let me just invite you if you're in Christ to, to as we stand, to, to sing his praises as those opening verses say, to come forward and taste and see that the Lord is good and be reminded, if you're in Christ, that that is, that, that bread, that I'll just tell you, it's not that tasty. That's his body broken for you. The cup, juice, wine, right? That's his blood shed for you. What he has done is so satisfying for us. So starve out your fears. Feast on a daily buffet of God's grace. Don't live by lies. Walk in the truth. Live a life following a God who is greater than what you fear. Repent of sin, yes. Turn from evil and then pursue peace. Walk away from evil. Receive rescue. And when you're afraid, remember that you are dwelling in a well-appointed refuge with the Lord and his people with great confidence knowing that there is no condemnation when you simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.